The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes to us from the book of James, chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of light and set life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God, we thank you for your word. I'm going to ask you to answer this question out loud. Don't usually do this, but I'm going to ask you to answer this question out loud. I want you to say it all at the same time, okay? Who was your first grade teacher? Mrs. Ellison. Okay, who was your first grade teacher? You didn't have, I, apparently you didn't go to first grade because no one here is speaking. Okay. The fact that most of us, most of us could name this person on a dime. 
says something about the influence like a teacher has on our lives. The powers teachers have to influence us, to shape us, to transform us, it's really significant, isn't it? But this influential role of a teacher, which will define a teacher this morning broadly, anyone who in their use of words is able to influence, persuade, and guide people. That's a teacher. That's what we're using that definition this morning. Anyone with their use of words can influence, persuade, and guide people. It comes with a caution. Give anyone influence or the power of persuasion and what can easily happen. There can be abuse of that power position. Teachers might see their power, the words have, in steering people that they become the captain of a power trip ship. Their words, they get quoted by people. Their status gets promoted by people. Their books get published by people. This is what was happening a little bit in James's day. As we talked about, the recipients of James's letter were scattered Christians who in their new surroundings were being treated pretty badly. Because of their homelessness and their allegiance to Jesus, they were being treated as second-class citizens to the Jews and Gentiles of the day. But there was a remedy to that for them. Become a rabbi. The word rabbi literally means great one. Rabbis, unlike a lot of teachers of today, were treated with reverence and respect. So becoming a teacher, becoming a rabbi, meant getting a better seat at the table getting a closer spot in line at the market, getting a kinder welcome in the street. So here were more and more who wanted to be treated better signing up for seminary, pulling in front of them a pulpit, shouting out, can I get an amen? I'm going to ask you another question. At this time, I don't want you to answer it out loud. Who was the worst teacher you ever had? Probably another name quickly came to mind. What makes teachers and preachers bad? It's not necessarily what they said, but more how they said it. It's not always the content of their lecture, but the content of their character. A bad preacher or teacher someone who uses words to influence or persuade or guide, can in their pride steer the entire ship off the waterfall. And James begins this portion of his letter with a stern word of warning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is hearing how Christ's words are getting twisted by these new rabbis, how the gospel is getting badly sifted by these people who want a power position, and it's starting to impact the church as a whole and the church's influence in the world as well. 
these status seekers who are becoming teachers and rabbis are forgetting about what's true about a teacher's influence. Who, who they are at the end of the day is equally, if not more important than what they say. What they do makes all the more believable what they profess to be true. James's letter is all about what it means to be a slave of the master, a subject of the king, a student of the rabbi. And because a great teacher practices what they preach, we must let our words be fewer and our works be truer. I'll say that again. Because a great teacher always practices what they preach, we must let our words be fewer and our works be truer. The question that we want this text to answer for us is simply this. How does a great teacher practice what they preach? I think there's three things we need to know to be a great teacher. The first is this. A word can change the course of history. Secondly, a word can water a world that's on fire. And thirdly, a word can produce a place of peace. First, a word can change the course of history. Let's look at verses 1 to the beginning of 5. Words have weight. James begins with a warning of greater strictness to teachers. Literally, teachers will be receiving a greater judgment. Oh, oh, that makes me want to get out from this pulpit. Why? Because of the degree our influence of our words can have. He knows the impact simple words from the smallest of organs of the tongue can have on mankind's history. So he uses these illustrations like a little bitty bridle in a Budweiser Clydesdale mouth. You can steer the course of that horse like a tiny rudder on the Titanic. The tongue has the power to move mass and to move masses. If I preach to you this morning, God helps those who help themselves. And any one of you believe that word to be true, I would stand before God having to give an account for the hellish reality that I just put you under. Think about the things your parents, who were your primary teachers, have had on you. Ever heard words from them that changed the course of your history? You'll never amount to anything, you waste of space. Or, I'm so thankful God gave you to us, dear daughter. You're really good with your hands, son. Or, you are the biggest klutz. I'm here for you, son. I'm here for you, little buddy. Or, stay out of my way, you little loser. Parents' words have influence on our history. We've all said things we regret as parents. James knows that. He encourages us with verse 2, telling us we all trip up in many ways. And if anyone does not trip in what he says, he's a perfect man, 
able to control his whole body. James knows we preachers, we teachers, we parents can't in and of ourselves be perfect in word and speech. But what he does want us to see is the way in which this tiny tongue and the words it produces can change the course of an entire life, not only for the one hearing the words, but also for the one speaking the words. One little white lie can lead someone to become a habitual liar. One truth spoken leads a person to becoming a truth teller. It affects those that hear it, and it affects those that speak it. Jesus' ministry in the gospel is filled with history-changing word moments where Jesus makes with his tongue what verse 5 calls great boasts. He says to someone, son, your sins are forgiven, and then a paralyzed man gets up and walks. History is changed. A woman of the city, a prostitute, hears the words, your sins are forgiven, and she is saved, walking away from the shame of her past and into the arms of Christ's perfect peace. History is changed. It affects those hearing dramatically, but it also affects the ones speaking. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, how do those words affect him? Because they do. When he says that, he must feel the foreshadowing pierce of his own flesh on the cross when he says, your sins are forgiven. What he said was true was also what he was called to do. I want to ask you this question. If you believed that every word you spoke had life-changing, history-changing potential, whether for good or for ill, every word you spoke, what would happen to your word count of the day? What if every word you spoke was also to be judged by how well you kept that word? What would happen to your word count of the day? Our words would be fewer, and our works would be truer. How else does a great teacher practice what they preach? First, they know that a word can change the course of history. And second, they know that a word can water a world that's on fire. See this in verses 5 to 12. James, in these verses, he calls the tongue a fire like the little ember left unattended in a Canadian campground can start thousands of acres on fire, the tongue has the potential to create something that burns completely out of control. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. We have to think, James wants us to think of the beginning of mankind when we hear these words. As a serpent in his double-tongued spark convinces Eve to eat the poison of believing that she knows better than God. What happens? 
a forest fire of generational sin stained the whole body of God's people, setting on fire the entire circle of life. And Adam's first words off of his tongue when that happened revealed that. They're the flames of blame. The woman you put here with me made me eat. And Eve's first words in response, spread the fire. The devil made me do it. Out of the poisoned heart now, the mouth speaks and sets the world completely on fire. Do you see this in our culture day after day after day? The movie Oppenheimer, it has some controversy attached to it. And one of those controversies is with what the movie proposes was one of the big concerns scientists had. If you know the movie, the movie is about uh, Oppenheimer, who is all about being the father of the atomic bomb, okay? And the controversy has is concerning the scientists, uh, their concern in detonating the first atomic bomb. It's a theory called atmospheric ignition, They wondered if this tremendous fireball that they were creating, this bomb they were creating, they wondered, would it be so great and so hot that it would heat the nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere to the point that the atmosphere's atomic cores called nuclei or that they would fuse? And what would happen was when that bomb would go off, the energy release would cause more nuclei to fuse, triggering a runway reaction that sets the entire atmosphere on fire. The end of the world. They didn't know if that was going to happen with this bomb. And the controversy is that in the movie is that most scientists in the movie knew that it wasn't going to happen. But James, the writer here, knows with certainty that that is what happened with the tongue. It blew up the world, and it has spread a fire which no human being who even has the power to tame all of these animals can even tame. You can't tame the tongue. It is a restless evil filled with the poison of hell injected into the fruit of God's paradise. With the tongue, James says in verse, time, verse 9, we bless Jesus and we bless the Father and then we speak judgment down on people God said were made in His image. Double-tongued people, all of us, duplicitous, blessing God on a Sunday morning worship service and then cursing our brother or our sister as soon as the car door slams to head home. These things ought not be so, James says. What does he propose as the remedy? Pure water and matching fruit from the source of the spring, the heart that's been saved by Christ should come out fresh water. From the fig tree, someone who's rooted in Jesus should come out Jesus, figs. The only thing to change the course of a worldwide forest fire of sin-filled hearts and untamed tongues is the fresh water of faith. It is the fruit of life that could stop a nuclear disaster of sin. You see it with the simple phrase on the cross, it is finished. So what does it look like for us?
It means, I'll call this, single-tonguedness. What we say is what we do. We bless God, and instead of cursing someone's name under your breath, we bless them in our hearts. We pray to God, and instead of hoping someone who wronged you will pay, we pray for them too. It also means spirit-tamed tongues. The Spirit of God holds our tongue from speaking judgment, flattery, innuendo, gossip, slander, spite, sarcasm, shame. Hold our tongue. And the Spirit of God leads our tongue to speak words of wisdom, which come not from ourselves, but from heaven above. Friends, as we allow our tongues to be single and to be spirit-tamed, hear the sizzle of heaven's mercy reigning on a world on fire. With tongue, tongues being held. Hear the sizzle, the cooling of this world that is on fire. How does a great teacher practice what they preach? Three things. Knows a word can change the course of history. Knows a word can water a world on fire. And finally, a, world, a word can produce a place of peace. Look with me at verses 13 to 18. James asks a question here that's related to teachers. It seems like it could be off topic, but it's not. It is still related to his concern about these people becoming rabbis and teachers. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? That's a great question to help people determine, okay, so who are the true teachers, the greatest teachers among us? Who are the rabbis? Who are the wise and understanding ones? Are they the hot-aired preachers or the inflated-head teachers? James doesn't point them to look at the eloquent sermons or their sharp wit. No, he says, look at their life. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 16, if the person is consumed with whether he's better than the rabbi down the road, that's bitter jealousy, or wants to make a buck off his congregation to purchase a new Porsche, that's selfish ambition. That's not God's guide. That's not a rabbi. That's the world's wisdom. That's the flesh's professor. That's Satan's school teacher you're seeing there. If you follow them, verse 16 says, get ready for chaos, disorder, and bad behavior. But if you're looking for God's guides, look at what is produced from their lips and from their life. Pure words, peaceable words, gentle words, reasonable words, merciful words, fruitful words, just words, sincere words. This classroom led by this teacher will produce, verse 18 says, a place of peace. This doesn't mean a wise guide never corrects someone. No, that wouldn't be wise. That wouldn't be merciful to never correct someone who's in the wrong. But look for the way in which they correct. Pay close attention to who you are listening to as a guide, James is asking. 
Does whose words you're listening to, like the prince of darkness who's out for himself, bitter and tearing down anyone who is a threat to him, do they look like that? Or do they look like the prince of peace, Jesus, who laid down his life for his brothers and sisters because of a joy set before him by his Father to invite any dumble-tongued, any fire-starting sinner to a place filled with his peace? Come in. I'll close with this story. From a famous radio broadcaster, if any of you remember radio, the guy's name was Paul Harvey, and he did a podcast, not podcast, it would have been a podcast at the time, called The Rest of the Story. And he tells this story, which I thought really illustrates the power of words, friends, and the forest fire that can be caused by them. In 1899, four newspaper reporters from Denver, Colorado, set out to tear down the Great Wall of China. And they almost succeeded, literally. The four men met by chance in a Denver railway depot. They worked for four Denver newspapers. Websites. I got to change it a little bit to fit our context. Each had been sent by his respective newspaper to dig up a story. Any story. For the Sunday paper. So the reporters were in the railroad station hoping to snag maybe a celebrity that's passing through or hear of some juicy story that's going on in the country's culture. But nothing happened that night, by train or otherwise. No news was bad news for them. All were facing empty-handed return trips to their city desks. One reporter declared he was going to make up a story and hand it in. The other three laughed. Some suggested, let's just all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. And so they did. Someone else said, you know, I, th I think I like the idea of faking a story. Why didn't each of them fake a story and get off the hook? And so one of them said, you know, what? we're thinking too small. Four of us half-baked fakes that didn't cut it. What we needed was one big story that we could all use and publish. Another round of beers. A phony story that's set in the United States would be too easy to check on, too easy to, to check our sources. So they began talking about foreign angles that'll be harder to verify. China's far enough away. Yeah, let's write about China. And one reporter leaned in, gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the bar. Try this one on, he said. A group of American engineers are stopping in Denver on their way to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall, and our engineers are bidding on the job. One of them was skeptical. Well, why, why would the Chinese want to destroy this Great Wall of China that they've created? And they thought for a moment, oh, they're tearing down the wall to symbolize the tearing down of boundaries and wanting to have international goodwill and welcoming foreign trade. That's why they're doing it. Another round of beers. By 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details of their story. After leaving the bar, they'd go over to the Windsor Hotel where they signed four fictitious names on the registry and they told the desk clerk to tell anyone who asked that the four New Yorkers had arrived that evening, had been interviewed by reporters, had left early the next morning for California. 
And then the next morning, the Denver newspapers carried the story. All four newspapers on the front page carried the story. The Denver Times read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeks World Trade. The story was a phony fabrication concocted by four reporters in a hotel bar, but the story was taken seriously. It was picked up, expanded by newspapers in the eastern U.S., and then by international papers. When the Chinese learned themselves about the story, that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, most were indignant, some were enraged. Particularly angry were the members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already wary of foreign intervention. And they, inspired by the story, exploded a rampage against the foreign embassies in Peking and slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. In two months, 12,000 troops from six countries joined forces, invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed which followed, sparked by a journalistic host, hoax invented in a barroom in Denver, became the white-hot international wildfire known as the Boxer Rebellion, where it's estimated that 100,000 people lost their lives. A word changed the course of history. It set the world on fire and all-out war. Not many of you should become teachers. For every wordsmith, every influencer, every reporter, every preacher, and every teacher will be judged with greater strictness. Friends, the greatest teacher practiced what he preached. One word, Jesus, which means the Lord saves, would change the course of wildfire history. One word speaking, Father, forgive them, would send billions of gallons of mercy over a hot world. And one word, the Prince of Peace, would tear down not the great wall, but the wall between a sinful people and a holy God, inviting us to lie down in green pastures. Let our words be fewer and our works be truer, so that in what we say and in what we do, the great one, the rabbi, Jesus, is seen and heard. Let's pray. Father, let our words be few and our lives be true. Amen.